first reading will be from Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. That her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and the rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. You who bring goodness to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring goodness to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, the second reading is taken from the book of Psalms, chapter 147, verses 1 through 12 and 20. Praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Extol the Lord, Jerusalem. Praise your God, Zion. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. 
This is the word of the Lord. Is from the Gospel, Gospel of uh, Mark, chapter 1, verse, starting at verse 29. We'll honour an, a tradition which honours the Gospel. Please stand. The good news of Jesus the Messiah. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John up to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, helped her up, and the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. And he also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they had found him, they explained, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also, because that is why I have come. So we traveled throughout the Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Okay. Hello. Um, so, 121 days of war. How's everyone doing? Anyone else? Anxiety attacks, anyone? Panic, breathing is good. Chest pains. Rushing, raging thoughts that never stop. Um, some of you know I have a 20-year-old son in Gaza. Um, and that has certainly led me to a significant amount of worry, anxiety, um, freaking out, troubled sleep, um, and panic attacks. Um, but every evening, I am... Renewed, encouraged. By the Lord, you say, alas, no. Um, every evening, I watch a guy called Daniel Hagari. We have somebody here who works with Daniel. Um, a guy called Daniel Hagari. Does anybody know Daniel Hagari? A couple of you will do. He is the spokesperson for the IDF. And every evening, he comes onto my YouTube feed. Um, and there he stands. Um, not a particularly impressive man, but he stands there and with firmness and surety in his voice, he tells me, this is what's happening, everything's okay, you're fine. 
You can go to bed. You're good. And every evening I listen to Daniel, and because he is a good leader, I feel comforted. I feel reassured, and I feel as if I can go to sleep in peace. And I am sure that whatever worries and concerns Daniel has in his head and his heart, that's what he wants to do, and that's what he's doing. He's doing what a good leader should, is to give everybody the strength and the encouragement and the sense of security that they don't have throughout the rest of the day. And for that, I appreciate him. By the way, in the morning service, I mentioned Daniel Hagali, and one of the ladies who was older than me said, Ooh, my boyfriend. Um, I, I reminded her that, that Daniel is, in fact, married. Um, but yeah, she certainly liked him more than I did. Um, Isaiah 40, the passage that we're going to look at today, is a passage about a leader. Um, the coming of a leader. And as we go through this passage, um, which, by the way, was beautiful enough for Handel to write his wonderful masterpiece on, um, as we go through Isaiah 40, we're going to discover three things. Number one, who is this leader that is coming? Um, because as you can as you heard, as we read, it talks about making way for him. He's arriving. So who is this leader? Um, how is he coming? And what to do when he comes, right? So who is it? How is he coming? And what to do when he comes? So let's begin. Um, as I said, right here um, in our passage, it begins um, with comforting and, 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 and verse 2, which we'll discuss. But verse 3, it tells us to make straight his way. Now, there is a Babylonian inscription that, like Scripture, tells us to make, way, uh, make a, sh a straight way, and it is for the coming of the king, right? Ways are made straight. The road leading into the city is cleaned up when the king arrives. And this is true for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of human history. Whenever a king would visit a town or a city, the way was made straight. That means the people went out the city, they cleared it up, they moved things out of the way, they got it ready, they made it pretty so that the king would arrive. And when he showed up, by the way, they would leave the town and meet the king outside the town on the road and process into the town with the king. It was a way you received the king. And this arrival of the king has two main metaphors to it. And the first one, I imagine you could probably guess for yourself. The first one is, get everything out of the way because of the king's authority, right? The king is the king. He is the leader. He is our strength. He's the guy that we're going to look to if war happens or an enemy shows up. And so we all have to respect his authority. Now, the authority of the king is interesting because we also read this week from Mark chapter 1. Now, in Mark chapter 1, we see another king, Jesus, right? And I would say that it's the same king, but we'll start with Jesus's authority in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus shows his authority in a very interesting way. He shows that his authority is not derived. Now, what do I mean by a derived authority? It means that his authority doesn't come from someone else. You see, even a, a leader 
is, uh, for example, the prime minister today, he has his authority, but it is derived from somewhere, right? Where is it derived from in a democracy? The people, right? We vote for the leader, and based on the fact that everybody chose him, he has authority for a certain period of time. And if you're BB, that means decades, right? But you have a derived authority that comes from people. Um, if you are um, a deacon or a priest here in this church, you also have a derived authority. And the authority comes from Scripture. The fact that I'm actually going to accurately reflect what's written here in the Bible comes the authority from which I'm able to speak and say, hey guys, this is what it says. Um, but Jesus doesn't have a derived authority. And one of the ways he demonstrates it, and interesting, in, in the, the NIV or modern translations, we don't quite hear it as well. In the old King James, we hear it really well. He says this, this line that you've probably heard repeated again and again. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Anyone remember that line? It's just me and older people. Um, verily, verily, I say unto you. Right? What he's saying is, I'm saying it. So no derived authority. I'm saying it. And the verily, verily, it's interesting, it's not the word verily, it's the word amen. Now in those days, and sometimes even in synagogues today, um, when the Bible is being read or when things are being done, um, a group of the older people or the regulars will be in the room, and if somebody says something right, they will say amen, right? In certain churches, you can actually go, and as you're preaching, the crowd will say amen. Right? And it's awesome for the preacher because you get some sort of like energy back from the crowd. In Christchurch, that, that doesn't really happen. You kind of have to just preach by faith in Christchurch. Believe that they're listening. Um, but, but yeah, the crowd will come back with an amen. But when Jesus shows up, he says, amen, amen, I say unto you. What he's basically saying is, I'm amening myself. Right? He doesn't need the crowd or the elders to confirm that he's saying something right. And he doesn't say, thus saith the Lord, right? He doesn't quote from God. He says it from himself. It's Jesus' way of demonstrating that he is not a derived authority. He is the king. And not just the king sitting in Jerusalem on a pretty chair. He is the king that we're reading about in Isaiah chapter 40. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see how we keep going. Maybe this will be a thing. Okay. The second metaphor we have is in these ways being made straight. Now, the way being made straight here in this passage is actually pretty awesome. Because we don't only see the road being cleared up and sort of, you know, I know, holes being filled, I would imagine. But here in this passage, if you look in, chapter, in verse 4, it says, Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. The very earth is changing to receive the coming of this particular king. Now, what is the metaphor of places being made straight? Yeah? It is that the place is being healed, right? The place is being corrected, yeah? That which is bent is now made straight, and 
the king will come in and his justice will come with him. And his love and his healing and his caring for the people will come in as everything is made straight and made right. Now obviously the implication is if things need to be made right, it means that they aren't right now. Right now, they're broken. Right now, they're not well. But with the coming of the king, things will be made right. He will correct that which has gone wrong. And look after those that are made low. Again, the valleys are not just valleys. They are the people, the poor, those who need help, those who need to be lifted up. The mountains, the high places, right? These are things that have gone wrong in leadership, things that are going wrong in countries, in empires, and they will be brought low so that all the people will be equal and one standing before their God. That is the image that we have here of the king coming. So he doesn't only come with authority, but he also comes to correct things, to make things right, to make them true, and to make them just. So this is the coming of the king. And because we see these metaphors, we actually can see that it's a king. But then some might ask, but isn't this just a fairy tale? I mean, how do I know that this is real? How do I know that this is true? I mean, it sounds good and everything, but how can I be sure? Well, there's one particular way one particular person that I was reading that I felt helped me see this. Her name is Annie Dillard. She is an American author, and she writes quite interesting thoughts. I would call them thoughts. Um, and as she writes them, she wrote one particularly about nature. And she shows that as she looked out into nature, she witnessed something incredible. She witnessed nature's power. She said nature is so powerful. It is so strong. It it is uncontrollable, and she dealt with that, that imagery as she was discussing it. She even said nature is a monster. She said the world is a monster. It is too strong. I can't handle it or deal with it, and I see, like, terrible things happening. It seems so indifferent. Little fuzzy cute bunnies dying, right, or being eaten, or cute little things, like, just being taken by bigger things and eaten, right? And she witnessed that power and that that indifference, and she struggled with it. Because as she saw those things, she felt that there was something wrong. And she struggled with this idea. Why would this be wrong? She was not a, a believer in Scripture or the Bible or, or any particular given right or wrong. And she witnessed this and she said, something. the world is a monster and I feel like a freak. Because either, you know, I'm just a clump of cells here in this world that is so indifferent and I need to adjust my mind to become as indifferent as the world to fit that or, or there's something wrong and I'm standing here crying out at a world of indifference and cruelty and, and the world won't listen. How, how will I fix this? There's this beautiful piece of writing. I think it's beautiful um, that if you give me a second, I'd like to to read to you as she's sort of struggling with this particular thing. Here, she writes this. In the deeps of the violence and terror of which psychology has warned us. But if you ride these monsters deeper down, if you drop with them farther over the world's rim, you find what our sciences 
cannot locate or name. The substrate, the ocean or matrix, or ether which buoys the rest, which gives goodness its power for good and evil its power for evil, the unified field, our complex and inexplicable caring for each other and for our life together here. This is a given. It is not learned. She was struggling with this idea of how she was looking out at nature and nature felt to her unnatural. There's something wrong with this world. Something difficult that she didn't know how to deal with. And as she looked out at this place, she saw that there was something wrong and she asked herself, where does this come from? And you see her sort of trying to describe it in that passage. But she realized it's this set of values, this law that establishes the monstrous nature of nature. And that is what I would say is the king. You see, this isn't just a fairy tale. I don't just believe in scripture because it is nice. I believe it because it accurately describes the world in which I live and answers the questions that other people can't. Why do I look out at a cruel world and feel that something is wrong? Why don't I just accept it? Because the king, the God of all gods, the Lord of lords, has come and has shown us that there is a different way of living. It actually, truly doesn't have to be this way. And we can follow him. So we know that someone is coming and that that person coming is a king here in this passage. But how do they come? Isaiah's chapter 1 to 39 is different from the second half of the book. Isaiah chapter 1 through 39 is a harsh, a harsh bunch of chapters to read. Why? Because they're all negative, right? They give off vibes, right? They give off the vibe that you guys have messed up. You've completely screwed it up. And just in case anyone in this room is thinking, oh, right, because it criticizes the people that I disagree with, let me guarantee you Isaiah chapter 1 to 39 criticizes everyone, right? If you're right-wing, if you're left-wing, if you're conservative, if you're liberal, everyone gets criticized in Isaiah chapter 1 to 39. Everyone is treated equally. But then in chapter 40, things begin to change. And the, and the, the poet, the, the prophet, turns and says, comfort, comfort my people. He changes the way that he begins to speak to us. And then in verse 2, something astonishing is written. And I'll be honest with you, I kept reading it and misreading it for years. But I want to talk to you about it this evening. It says here, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her her heart service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now I swear to you, for years I have read that verse, and I have heard this. For God has given her double punishment for all her sins. That is the way that I read it. And it says the absolute opposite. That's not what it says at all. So let's read it again. That her sin has been paid for and that she has received, that is, the payment from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. She has received double payment 
for all her sins. What he is saying in this verse is not that God has smacked her about twice as hard as he needs to, right? He's saying that if she owed a million, God has showed up with a check for two. He has come to pay double for all of her sins. And let's keep reading. Verse 9, I jump forward. You bring good news to Zion. Go up on a high mountain. Now, good news, by the way, we hear about the gospel in church all the time. But I want you to understand this, this particular phrase, good news, right? And in Greek, it is, and I'm sure you've heard this before, euangelion, right? It is the good news, the gospel, the euangelion. But what is that? It's not just regular news, right? You could never in the ancient world just open up your phone, open up a website, and read a good news, a gospel, right? It wasn't there on a regular basis. A good news is a very special piece of news. Um, there is an inscription here in Israel that reads, here is the gospel according to Caesar Augustus, right? And you're like, how would Caesar Augustus have a gospel? Well, a message went out with that phrase in it to announce what? That Augustus was becoming Caesar, that he was being crowned the ruler of the entire Roman Empire. And it was a good news. It is a momentous moment. A grand, history-changing thing is about to happen. That's what is meant when the phrase is used, good news. Okay. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice and shout, lift up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. So first of all, this king is coming. This king is divine, right? And he's not just showing up as in, hey, everybody, just so you know, God exists. No, he's actually physically showing up. The king, God, is becoming king and arriving to a city near you, okay? That is what he's trying to say. That's the history-changing, momentous good news. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. And then it says something really weird. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Now, most of us read that verse and we assume because in many cases, including me and everyone else, right? I'm not differentiating between people who know and people who don't. All human beings do this. We read with prejudice. We think we already know before we read, right? Which is why sometimes we skip over words. We thought that it was the word, and then we went back and read closer. It was actually a different one. Here, too, we assume that when it says that God is coming with a reward, he's coming with a reward for other people. But that's not what it says at all. It's his reward. God is showing up and receiving a reward for himself. His recompense accompanies him. And you might be asking yourself, as I asked myself when preparing this message, what on earth would be God's reward? I mean, what does he need, right? What, does God what could God possibly need? Yeah, by the way, I do Duolingo. Did anyone else do Duolingo? Yeah, I'm doing Italian. Nice. And I don't know if you've seen this in your Italian learning, but for some reason, I'm always reading about other people's birthdays in Italian and how I should get them a gift, yeah? Ooh, Luca needs a gift. Maybe he needs a bicicletta. Maybe he needs a this. Yeah? But 
What gift am I going to bring God? The passage tells us what his gift is. And his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. His gift, his reward, is you. You're his gift. You're the reward. You're the reward for his payment of double for all your sins. The king has come and he has delivered a payment. A payment for every single one of you. Why double? Because he wants you to know that it's not just the sin you sin today that he's forgiven, but he's forgiving the sin for tomorrow. He wants you to know that it's not just your entire past that has been forgiven, but is your entire future. And he wants you to know that it is not just this life he has forgiven, but he has forgiven you all the way into the life to come and for eternity. He has paid double for you. And he is coming for his reward, which is you. Because you are his joy. You are what makes his heart sing. He is mad about you. That is what Isaiah 40 is trying to communicate to all of us. It reminds me of a song we sing at Passover called Dieno. Yeah? Anyone sing Dieno at Passover? Some people? A few? Okay. Dieno is a... It's a song that you kind of like get into at the beginning. You're kind of all right with halfway through, but by the end of it, you're like, sweet Lord, let it end. (laughs) But the thing that's awesome about Dieno is that it has just line after line of things that God has done for us. Oh, you know, if all he had done was, you know, spoken to Moses and done some miracles, that would have been awesome. If all he had done was taken us out of Egypt, that would have been amazing. If all he had done is redeemed the firstborn, that would have been brilliant. And it just goes after one, after one, after one. And in reality, it's supposed to be annoying because you're supposed to realize that you really could go on and on numbering the numbers of things that God has done for you and it would not end. Now, when you sit back and listen to it the way that I hope you're hearing it from Isaiah 40, yeah, is what you should be hearing is the number of ways that God is just super excited that he has come into this world and saved you because he is crazy about you. That's what Isaiah 40 wants us to sing when we're singing Dieno. Um, My wife has read a book Um, by a man called Martin Lloyd-Jones. There's a Welsh name for you, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he was a famous preacher in the city of London, and he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, Um, a book that I suggest uh, everyone to read, because if you've only had a hard time in your walk with God, then it's a really good book to read. So he wrote this book called Spiritual Depression, which is a series of essays, and in essay number two, He talks about how he's amazed at how many Christians suffer with anxiety and security, how many of them deal with, you know, continuously practice gossip at church. Now, I'm not talking about the anxiety, security, insecurity, and depression that we experience from genuine mental illness, but just regular old anxiety and insecurity. And he says it's because most of us believe that we are pardoned 
but we still have to just get it done, right? Like, I've been forgiven, right? And that's done now, and now I have to do things, right? I have to, like, hurry up and get things done. Or I'm forgiven, but I'm not accepted. It's kind of like the kid who has done something wrong and has come to dad and said sorry, and dad says, yeah, yeah, I forgive you. Now shut up. Right? And the kid sitting there at the table looks at his dad and realizes that he's forgiven, but he's not accepted. Right? And he rushes around trying to be a really good boy so that dad will accept him. And dad's not making him feel that way. Right? That is not the love of God. The love of God, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, should be understood properly when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it tells us that we are the righteousness of God, that we are his joy, that he loves us and that he accepts us. And that if we're trying to obey God by doing stuff so that we can get into heaven, if we're trying to obey God by doing stuff so that he will answer our prayers, then we are not obeying God at all. We're using him. That's not obedience. That's using him. That's trying to get leverage on God. Hey, I did all this good stuff. Now, show me the answered prayer, baby. Right? But that's not obeying God at all. Obeying God is to come and see his double love. It's to come and see a mighty warrior who is a shepherd caring for the flock that is his recompense and reward. That is obedience. And so, now that we have seen who is coming, the king, and how he is coming with forgiveness and love and joy, how are we supposed to respond to that? And that brings me to the very last verse here, verse 31. And it says here in verse 31, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Now, um, that's what it says here in the NIV, the nearly inspired version. In the ESV, the real Bible, um, it says, those who wait upon the Lord. Um, can anyone tell what Bible I use when studying Scripture? Okay. Um, Wait upon the Lord. Now, wait upon the Lord, I've got to tell you, of all the, the little Christian phrases that are out there, wait upon the Lord drives me mental, right? It bugs me no end because I never understand what it means, right? Wait upon the Lord. And I'm just like, well, I don't know why I said it in American accent, by the way. Um, but maybe because that's how I hear it. But like, what does that mean? Do you want me to just sit here? Like, I don't get it. Um, and it drives me mental. Uh, so God in his wisdom forced me to study the phrase. Wait upon the Lord. Okay. Three things we will talk about in waiting upon the Lord. The first meaning from this word um, should be a, an obedience. Waiting as in this. You wait in his presence, yeah, knowing who he is. And therefore, even though you don't hear him, Listen to this one, people. Even though you don't feel him, you still do what you know to be right. Right? You still live as if you were overwhelmed in tears in prayer this morning. You still live as if you had an, a revelation of his presence. Yeah? You still walk with him. That's meaning number one for waiting on the Lord. 
Now, again, we talked about obedience just a moment ago. It's not going to be about trying to earn goodness or brownie points with God. It's more about, it's more about giving up. Um, a, a lady named, by the name of Elizabeth Elliot said that the hardest, the hardest thing to give is in. You have to give in. Stop fighting. Stop clawing, scratching for you, right? For, uh, but I want to do my thing. I want to do this thing that I've really, really, really wanted to do. Yeah? You have to give that moment up and trust and wait on the Lord in that way. The second thing is to relax, right? Or, as I prefer saying, to chill, right? You just have to chill. Relax, calm down, yeah? And trust in him. That's part of the waiting. An active trusting. Um, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, had a friend called Philip Melanchthon. And Philip was a warrior, okay? We all have that warrior friend. Um, he was a warrior. He fretted all the time which he should do because people were trying to kill him. Um, but he worried. And sometimes Luther would show up, put his hand on his shoulder, and say, hey, Philip. I'm going to quote it because it's quite funny. He says, let Philip cease to rule the world, he would say. What did he mean? He meant that chronic warriors are people who think that by worrying and thinking about it incessantly and obsessively, they will somehow change things or be better prepared for the thing when it comes. And he said, stop trying to rule the world. Stop trying to control it. Yeah? Let it go. In other words, chill. Right? Just chill. And then the final one is hope. Yes, the NIV got something right. Um, the word, in some respects, does mean hope. In fact, the Hebrew word is a, is, has the same root as the word in modern Hebrew of hope, yeah? Which is kaveh, right? Tikva, kaveh, hope. But this is not just a hope of um, think about things that you really want to happen and be happy as you're thinking them, right? That's not the hope that this is referring to. This is a hope that comes from a faith, a belief that God is actually the king of this universe. And if God is actually the king of this universe, I can trust and believe that amazing things could happen. If I can come back to our real world for a second and come out of our thoughts and back, I have many times completely lost belief that the hostages are going to come back. But Isaiah 40, when I stare into the eyes of the king, I can believe. I can believe it can happen. I look at the news and I'm hearing even this old lady's boyfriend, Daniel Hagari, right, telling me time and time again, we're going to fight for a year. This war is going to keep going. But when I stare in the eyes of the king, I can believe that there'll be peace. I can believe that this will end sooner than that. Even the things that in the morning when I get up, I think there's no way. Right? 
But as I stare into his face, I can believe it. I believe that I can do it. I believe that we can do it. I can believe in humanity again when I stare into the face of the king. That is the hope that God is asking us to have. And when we obey him like that, and when we wait on him like that, when we chill like that, we will renew our strength. We will find a strength and a power and an energy to love and to care for this world that we never had before. Even when we don't feel it, it's there because it's him. It's not me. The passage ends with another puzzle. It says here, they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm just like, Isaiah, you, you missed the trick there, bro. You're supposed to start with the walking, then go to the running, then going to the soaring like an eagle, right? That's a buildup, bro. That's how you do it. But he went soaring and then running and then walking. And I was like, fail. But what I think he's trying to communicate is that, yes, sometimes you will soar and sometimes you will run. But most of the time, you're going to walk. Most of the time, you will walk. In fact, if you're like me, you will experience days, weeks, and sometimes months when you feel like you are stumbling around in the darkness. Because walking with God is not a simple thing. And it's not a now I'm happy and, you know, smiley everyday thing. It really is not. It's difficult. And there are times when he's far away. But I can renew my strength and I can walk with him and I can deal with the difficult times because I know my king is with me and is there every step of the way. So brothers and sisters, I implore you, follow him, obey him, relax in him. Wait on him. And hope with me in the coming of the King. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.